Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. We uh, are continuing our series in the parables of Jesus. And this morning we're going to look at three parables, the growing seed, the grain of mustard, and the leaven and the dough. You're excited, I can tell. We're going to read about the growing seed in Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 26, and then we're going to slip over uh, to Matthew chapter 13. I think these parables were uttered on more than one occasion, and these parables are very important, as I shall explain in just a moment, but let's read them together. So, looking at the Gospel of Mark chapter 4, verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Now turn over to Matthew 13, and we'll begin reading at verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like Leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Ever wondered how it is that Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God and yet with all of the expectations surrounding that kingdom, what was expected didn't seem to transpire as expected. It came, but not as expected. The expected was yet to come. And I want to emphasize that. That's what these parables that we've just read emphasize. I think to help us appreciate what's uh, so significant is if we go back to the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, and it's very convenient, it's in all of the Gospels, but very convenient in the Gospel of Mark because in just the first 15 verses, we get the scope of what I'm talking about. And so let me just show you for a moment Mark, verses 1 through 15 of chapter 1. It begins, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, or Jesus, the Christ. The Christ is the Greek expression of the Hebrew expression, the Messiah. 
So whenever you read the Christ, think the Messiah. And then, in that opening chapter, in verses 2 through 8, Mark tells us that Jesus comes in fulfillment of Isaiah and the prophets. And then at his baptism, Jesus is confirmed as the Messiah by the Heavenly Father. And then, driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, the the Satan, Satan himself, opposes Jesus, who is the arch-opponent of God's kingdom, of God's will, of God's work on earth. And so, in just, you know, 13 quick verses, we see powerfully and poignantly that Jesus is the Messiah in fulfillment of prophecy, confirmed by God the Father, and opposed by Satan. And what does Jesus himself say? His own words in verse 14 and 15 are these. God's good news. The time is fulfilled. That is, the chosen time is is ripe. It's here. It's full. The kingdom is at hand. It has drawn near. And because it has come, it is near. It is at hand. And it's in Jesus. In a very poignant and powerful way. And then, as as if to verify that truth, Jesus says to people, because this is the case, turn. Turn from what you're doing. Turn from what occupies, preoccupies, or has diverted your attention. Turn to what God is doing now in the dawning of his reign. And believe in the good news. And we can say that good news, which Jesus has just announced. Believe in what I'm saying. This is extremely powerful stuff. I think we read it, we hear it, we get accustomed to it. But this was really earth-shaking to suggest that right now, in what Jesus is doing, all of their expectations of the prophetic announcements that these people have been longing for are here. This is the setting of Jesus' words and actions. This is the setting of his parables and his teaching. The kingdom is at hand. Turn, believe, the time is fulfilled. So what did Galileans, and you'll recall that Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, which was north of Samaria, up around the Sea of Galilee, In fact, we've even seen that leadership from Jerusalem came down and went north to hear Jesus and to address some of the things that were 
making their way to them, that they were hearing about him. What did they hear when he talked about the kingdom? What, what did it trigger? And, and just as a point of reference, if someone said to you, Jesus is coming at the end of this week. One week from today, Jesus will return. What kind of images and ideas would fill your mind and heart that are a part of your expectation that Jesus is going to return. That's the kind of thing that would immediately come to mind when Jesus mentioned the expression kingdom. He didn't have to announce that it was coming. Everyone expected it to come. He's talking about it being here. And that sets up some amazing expectations. Just to put it in perspective, let's remember Zechariah, who is the father of John the Baptist, when John was born, he called him the, the prophet of the Most High God, and he was going to prepare the way for Jesus the Messiah. He knew that the Messiah was going to be born because Mary had come and visited and announced it to Elizabeth. In fact, the Spirit leapt in her womb. And when John was born, John recognized all, Zechariah recognized all these things coming to pass, and this is what he sings. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for, and notice, he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. This is the way you talk about the Messiah, the anointed one of God who's going to come and come at last. David, his servant. And he spoke, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, prophecy is now being fulfilled. All that we've expected is coming to pass. Salvation, deliverance from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And then he goes on to say, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Because God is faithful, you see. He's going to fulfill his oath, which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That is very, very profound and people had these concrete expectations of God fulfilling his kingdom promises, his reign, that God himself is going to arrive and accomplish these things in a great and mighty way. In fact, uh, to help us picture this, N.T. Wright, in his uh, book, Jesus and the Victory of God, says so concrete were these expectations that if Pilate, remember the governor who judged Jesus and condemned him to death on a cross? That Pilate was a representative of a greater power than the ruling power in Judea, a foreign power, a pagan power, a Gentile power. And N.T. Wright says, if the temple was, excuse me, if Pilate was still governing Judea, then the kingdom had not come. 
If the temple was not rebuilt, you remember they were building that temple. Herod the Great was trying to rebuild that temple in John chapter 2. In fact, Jesus had driven out money changers and raised a lot of eyebrows. And Jesus said, in three days, this temple is going to be rebuilt, referring to his own death. And right, well, they didn't understand that. Because they said, for 40 years this has been going on, it's still not finished. But they expected the temple to be rebuilt. They expected it to be the glory of Israel. That pagans would repent and come to Zion and worship the one true God. And they expected that all to happen. And so Wright says, if, if Pilate's still on his throne and the Messiah has not arrived, then the kingdom has not come. If Israel was not observing the, God's true law, then the kingdom had not come. If the pagans or Gentiles were not overthrown and flocking to Zion for instruction, then the kingdom had not come. Remember John the Baptist? He sent his own disciples after he was imprisoned. He said, would you go to Jesus and ask him? And this is what he asked. Are you the coming one? The coming one was uh, an equivalent of the Messiah, the anointed one, the one we expect. He says, are you that one? Or should we expect someone else? And that's got to be heady stuff for John because his whole ministry was committed to preparing the way for Jesus. And now he's saying, are you the one? And Jesus says to his disciples, that is the disciples of John, go back to John and tell him what you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news proclaimed to them. Blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. See, Jesus expected there to be some offense. In fact, when he mentioned these things that were being fulfilled that had, in fact, been in his own actions accomplished as he traveled around and proclaimed the kingdom and called people to discipleship, he was fulfilling again and again and again prophetic expectations buried in Isaiah, for example. But he says, go back and tell him, yeah, I'm the, I'm the Messiah. Blessed is he who does not stumble over me. Even Jesus' own disciples stumbled. In Mark chapter 8, for example, and this is recorded in Matthew 16 and also in the Gospel of Luke. You remember in Mark chapter 8, it's, it begins at verse 27, Jesus is making his way now up to Jerusalem and he turns to his disciples and he says, who do people think that I am? That's a really profound question. It, you know, you'd think, isn't it already obvious? And they said, you're a great prophet. That's what they think. But Peter says, I think you're the Messiah. And when he said that, Jesus said, don't tell anybody. He didn't say, you're right. He just said, don't tell anybody. And then he went on to say, when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be tried and convicted and crucified. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. He made that very clear 
Three times in the Gospel of Mark it's recorded, chapter 8, 9, and then again in chapter 10. And it's interesting, in chapter 10, in fact, the mother of James and John, they, you know, the family's own expectations are that when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he's going to bring this whole thing in just as they expect. And so James and John are kind of vying with the other disciples as to who's going to sit at his right hand in his glory. But when he actually gets there, it's the cross. And when Peter heard him talk about the cross, I don't even think he or the disciples could hear this talk about being raised. Maybe they associated it with glory as they anticipated it. But Peter took Jesus aside and tried to straighten him out, wanted to correct his understanding. And Jesus said these very prominent words, Peter, get thee behind me. Actually, he said Satan because he felt that Peter in this opposition was falling into the very kind of challenge that Jesus was facing again and again as he battled some of the expectations surrounding the coming of the kingdom of God. And so he said to Peter, you have not the thoughts of God but the thoughts of men in mind. The expectations, you see. This is really significant. Those expectations did not include the death of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the cross. They are there, but they were not. They expected a reigning king like David in all of his glory. When the empire of of Judea and his land was at its greatest, and there was one kingdom, not divided north and south. And so all of this was to happen. And it, it's pretty clear, and this might help you to see this, when, when the prophets look into the future, they see the kingdom and what God's going to do as this monolithic thing. Uh, this actually happened to me when I was backpacking a in the John Muir wilderness years ago on more than one occasion. But the first time I was making my way and I looked up at this massive, beautiful peak with snow on the top over 13,000 feet. But as I made my way around, I realized it wasn't just one peak. It was two. I saw it as one. The, the one in front blended into the higher one in the back. I've tried to depict that with the dotted line. But that's what happens with God's work in Jesus Christ because at his coming and at his actual proclamation of the kingdom, the kingdom is come. It is begun. Jesus begins a work which will be culminated in a greater work. But where the people's expectations were on the finish, the consummation and completion of the kingdom, They did not see God's work and the reality of it in Jesus Christ. And so the Messiah has come. In fact, there is an already and a not yet. And this is depicted in these three parables. And that's what I want us to appreciate. But just as an emphasis for us, because we are not depicted. Our actions, our discipleship, our entrance to the character of the kingdom is not the point of these parables. 
But there needs to be a point for us, and I'll draw some of the conclusions in just a moment. But I just want us to appreciate that we really need to understand that we are part of something great. Even though, and by great, I don't mean, hey, cool, <laughs> or hey, that's great. But I mean great, grand, huge, all-encompassing. And I think a lot of times in our lives we feel very small, very insignificant. And sometimes that mindset creeps into our hearts, and we feel like pawns or victims in this world, and we are just wanting to wait for God to, you know, show up. And I think in the light of the kingdom of God and Jesus' mission, his ministry, his pronouncement, and even what we see in the parables, and we'll see more of this in some of the coming weeks, we need to realize that we're involved in a king-sized work of God. And that needs to flood our hearts. I don't know how to do that in your heart. I'm counting on the Spirit to begin that work even today if it needs to be begun in that way. To realize that you are significant to what God is doing and you are a part of this collective kingdom mindset that will be his ultimate operation, but we reflect the reality of that in Jesus Christ and what God has begun and has done in him. And so, when we look at these three parables, like the growing seed, we see an emphasis in their expectations and the prophetic expectation on the great harvest. But what Jesus is emphasizing is it starts very commonly with a with a, with a man who spreads, who actually, it says, casts seed. He casts this seed. And mysteriously, he doesn't know how. I mean, it, it, there's a sense of time. You know how they, in movies, sometimes they'll, they'll click to clouds moving across the sky or traffic moving. Uh, I remember in Citizen Kane, the newspaper pages turning, the clock moving. There's a way of demonstrating the passage of time. And here it's depicted powerfully in that the man, it says even according to Jewish time, when the day begins at night, at sunset, he goes to bed and then he rises. Day in and day out. And then it says, and during this time it grows. He knows not how, but the stock, the head, that is the crown of the stock. And then he recognizes the harvest and he puts the sickle to it and the harvest comes. That's what people expect is the harvest. And Jesus is saying, but you don't understand. It's beginning now in the seed that has been thrown and what is going on in the ministry right before you. Turn, believe in. And for us who see much more and have this grander perspective, for us, we've got to get king-sized. We've got to realize we're a part of something big. Live our lives purposefully with, with great patience. You know, profound, purposeful patience and promise. These things are part of the reality of the fact that we are a part of this very real kingdom. And so from sowing to harvest, look at this next parable, the mustard seed. A man sows some, a grain, it's literally grain of mustard. 
grain of mustard in the ground. And what Jesus emphasized, that that out of that smallest of seeds comes a, a growth that is bigger than anything else in the garden. It's tree-like. It's of the size of a tree in which birds can perch and build their nests. In fact, I have some pictures from when I was in the Holy Land. And this is in the Galilee. And uh, here are the seed. That's a whole pot of them. And, and one grain of mustard is a centimeter, just one centimeter. That's half the size of a sesame street, a seed. Um, an orchid seed is even smaller. But this was the smallest seed that any of the people and Jesus' hearers would know. So small. And when you look at that, do you think that's the kingdom? No. But Jesus says it is out of that that something so great is going to occur. And that's really the point. And here you get a They germinate within five days. They grow to a height of at least 10 feet. It's not an oak, but it's bigger than any vegetation in the garden and from the smallest of seeds. And that's the kind of comparison. The kingdom is like, the kingdom is like, it's like seed scattered that amounts to a great harvest. The man, he doesn't know how it's all transpiring. He rises, he goes to sleep, day in, day out, but he recognizes the harvest. He knows when the harvest has come. Like seed dropped into a garden, so small, insignificant, out of it, tree size, for birds to perch and build their nests. And third, leavened dough, like a woman who in three measures, three measures would be over 47 pounds of wheat flour. Now, I, I've only baked a few cakes, but 47 pounds? of wheat flour, that's about 170 cups. That's a whole lot of flour. How do you leaven all of that? Well, we use least yeast. Leaven was actually fermented dough that was carried over from the last baking. And so it would be mixed in, and the word is literally put in or hid, hid. And all of these are little clues to the fact that this is God's operation and it's not perceptible as we might expect. And yet it's profoundly at work. And there are just these little elements in what Jesus is saying in these parables, emphasizing that God is doing something great out of something very, very small. And so these three parables address the question in his ministry when we look at what you're talking about and what we're seeing, it just doesn't seem like what we expect. And yet Jesus wants them to understand this is very real. Get in on what is going on, what God is doing in your midst. And it is happening all around us. Just a couple of thoughts that do draw some application for us um, as I mentioned, you know, having a kingdom mentality is huge. And I think sometimes a lot of us don't, 
don't sense, sense that we have that stature. We don't live with that sense of profound purpose. That it is this great God that is operating in us. And we, as we like to put it, are about showing people who Christ is really like and all about. That's kingdom language, if you will. He who is the Messiah, the King, living his life through us, showing his kingdom to a world that doesn't believe in the profound power of God in our lives through Jesus Christ. And so I think this sense of purpose is very, very important. I uh, was reading this week and, and ran across a quote that I'd like to share with you. This is from Will Durant's uh, story of philosophy, and he's actually talking about Aristotle, but it really has some relevance for us because he says, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act. It's not just one thing. It's a lifestyle. It's a, a life practice. And that's what we're called to do in Jesus Christ. Rabbi Moshe, who was a, a famous uh, rabbi, a distinguished rabbi, uh, when he died, that was a significant event. And, and other students, other disciples came to one of the disciples of Rabbi Moshe and said, what was most important to your master, to Rabbi Moshe? And his disciple answered, whatever he happened to be doing at the moment... Sometimes we're living for big events and we're passing on moments because we think they're insignificant. And in our lives, we are fixed, you know, on what is visible and what the world hails as grand. But in Jesus' ministry, in the moments of his ministry, were profound things happening. This is such a moment. And just as uh, Durant brings out, really, excellence is not just an act. It's a habit. And what are habits formed from but moments? So which moments are most important? As Rabbi Moshe said, this moment is most important. This is the moment when God wants to operate in your life. This is the moment when he wants to be king of your heart. This is the moment when he wants to fill up our minds and hearts with his fullness, his joy, his resources. He wants to manifest himself through you and me. And this moment is followed by other moments. And the challenges come when we're in the midst of difficulties or we're tempted because of circumstances to become selfish and to forget that we have a king over us. It's at those moments that then we need to realize this is the most important moment. Have you ever heard that expression, your whole life has been leading up to this moment? 
What if you were to say that to yourselves throughout the day? Wouldn't it change the perspective on the little things of each and every day? Your whole life has been leading up to this moment, like this moment right now. What about how many moments do we discard or think they're unimportant because we're waiting for more important moments? Well, then are those more important moments the moments of God's kingdom when he's really on the throne of our lives? How do you enter the kingdom of God? Isn't it when you admit the king? When you acknowledge him? When you put on his uniform? Live according to his heart, his economy, his language? I think you get the point. We're not waiting for that kingdom. Jesus has brought it to us in a very real way. And it began with the cross and his resurrection, and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Things that are mentioned in that monolithic expectation, but whereas the people of Jesus' day were just focused on the harvest, Jesus was bringing something in that we're a part of, even as we wait, and we are a part of what God is ultimately going to do. So live with purpose, and Live with patience. Listen to what James says. It's, a, it's like he caught the gist of these very parables. James 5, 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And to live with promise. How beautiful are these words in the light of the parable of the grain of mustard. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Well, I thought, wow, if I really have faith, I can do Superman-esque kinds of things. But this is about... Faith in God. Faith isn't something that we just fire here and there. Faith is always focused on God's word to us. It's focused on him. And so faith is exercised when we respond to his word and we obey it. My life took off for Christ when I took him at his word and took him seriously. Love your enemy. When I stepped out in faith and started doing that, did I, did I stumble some? Sure. Was I the best lover of enemies on the planet? Absolutely not. But as I actually stepped out, my heart changed, my actions changed, and I began growing in my faith, growing in my trust, seeing what God would do when I would trust in his word. There are so many things that Jesus wants us to take to heart that will grow us and grow within us the reality of God and his kingdom in our lives. That's faith like a grain of mustard. It doesn't matter the size of our faith because it's not put in us. It's put in a God who's greater than who we are. And so, just like the, grain, the uh, seed growing and the grain of mustard, 
and the leaven in the dough, it seems so insignificant, but the cross, like it, is of great power in our lives. And that's what we celebrate this morning. The, the world looks on at the cross and sees it as a great failure. Paul himself, in his letter to the Corinthians, the first chapter, he said, as uh, folks get ready to serve us communion this morning, the bread and the cup, he said, the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. Folly to the Greeks. But to us, it's everything. It's the power of God unto salvation. And that's what we remember in this bread and in this cup. In this bread which represents his life given for ours. And the grace of God extended to us. And in this cup, his shed blood. But that which seals the covenant of God. A new covenant. A new way of relationship with God. And that's something that we are called to in Jesus Christ each and every day. Here we remember it because of its primary importance to our lives, our orientation to the way we see ourselves in this world, who we are and what we represent. I'm going to pray for us. And then as we take the bread and then take the cup, let it be your profession of faith, your acknowledgement of who he is. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus for the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And even now we're reminded that it, it really all begins with the death of Jesus, a death that was not a mistake or a failure or the end of a good man's life, but the purposeful work of your divine Son for us, that we might know relationship with you in which your law becomes living and your spirit a power in our lives, your church, your people. We praise and thank you in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had blessed he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. In the same way, after supper, the cup also saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. All of you drink it. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's the consummation of the kingdom, until he comes. Now, if you will, pass the cups toward the center. Thank you guys for picking them up. I want to remind you at the close of the service, which is upon us, that you have the opportunity, it's a chance for us to give to the Deacon's Fund, a tangible way in which we express the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and the knowledge of the gospel to people who need a helping hand. We've all been there, and uh, this is a way that we tangibly and concretely help those who come and turn to the church in a time of need and, of course, within the family of God. And so uh, if you are able, 
we invite you to give and give generously to that today. Will you stand with me? Knowing we are right with God is such a great place to be. The bread and the cup. Secure that in our hearts. Remind us that we belong to him and there is nothing between us and him. So we are free to live by faith in the power of the gracious work of God in Jesus Christ on the cross. Let's do that. Let's live for him today by faith in all the ways that we encounter in our own spheres and circles of influence in life. May God be praised in your life. God bless you.